Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> you know, we just celebrated uh, Martin Luther King, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, birthday and federal holiday this week. And I think there is a role for people bringing in their faith to the public square around specific issues, around specific causes that makes room for people of other faiths and doesn't say that uh, because we're Christian and Christians are the majority in this country, Christianity should dictate public policy. Hey, welcome Faithful Politics listeners and viewers. If you are watching us on our YouTube channel, I am your political host, Will Wright, and I'm joined by the venerable Pastor Josh, our faithful host. Nice indeed, to see you indeed. again. Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and, this, and this week we are joined by Guthrie Grace Fitzsimmons. Um, he's a fellow for Religion and Faith at American Progress. Now his work focuses um, on a wide range of issues related uh, to the role of religion in American public life, including promoting a progressive vision of religious liberty that champions LGBTQ rights and amplifying how faith communities empower social and economic justice. Um, prior to joining the American Progress, he worked with a lot of national faith leaders on high-profile advocacy campaigns such as opposing the Muslim ban and passing com comprehensive immigration uh, reform he has served as the Associate Director of the Rights and Inclusion Collaborative at Rethink Media, where he worked to promote Muslim, Arab, Sikh, and South Asian rights. And he previously um, was a faith coordinator at the National Immigration Forum, where he helped start the Evangelical Immigration Table. So thank you, Guthrie, for, for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, yeah, and and, and b before before we we hit record, we were we were marveling over your your um, Apple attire on your ear, um, and uh, you know you're invoking the spirit of Steve Jobs. Um. <laughs> when they ha when they had the pink ones come out, I was like, I have to get those bright pink. Uh, now now is it is it pink or is it? It's not like it's not like original pink it's it's like apple calls it something different right i think they call it coral but i uh i think it's pink yeah <laughs> yeah well well um um like i said we're, we're really glad uh to have you here um uh, we um last week we spoke with um brian kaler um which really you know kind of blew our our minds at least my mind anyways just to um, you know, kind of unpack sort of this separation in church of state, um, Christian nationalism. Um, we're going to have sort of a a conservative from a conservative um, religious think tank come join us next week. Um, so, so this week we really want to kind of just pick your brain and kind of figure out, um, you know, like like what what you think about you know kind of the, the the current events, the times, religion, so on and so forth. So, I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ask you like with with kind of this rise um, of Christian nationalism, um, like what 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 does that term mean for you? Well, first, let me say I'm glad you had Brian on. Uh, Brian is one of the experts I turn to uh, when I'm thinking about the separation of church and state and 
the threat of Christian nationalism because I do think it's a threat to our democracy. And Brian's been great. I have uh, became a Baptist actually about five years ago. I grew up Methodist my whole life. And then um, when my now husband and I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where we live now, I became a Baptist and I've just loved being a Baptist. I loved uh, the Baptist commitment to the separation of church and state that Brian embodies. And the Baptist Joint Committee on Religious Liberty is one of my absolute favorite organizations in DC that is really upholding from a Christian Baptist perspective, the separation of church and state. And I find that so powerful because on the you know far right and the Christian nationalist right, they wanna own the kind of Christian voice in democracy as the Christian nationalist, the idea that you need to be Christian to be American, that the United States is a Christian nation. Now, of course, the United States is a majority Christian nation, but that's a very different statement than saying it's a Christian nation, <laughs> which would mean that there's something about the essence of the nation that is Christian. And what I love about what Brian and what the Baptist Joint Committee is doing and what I try to do in my own work is to say we're Christians, against Christian nationalism, that we want to be good, uh, follow, trying our best to be good followers of Jesus. And in our current context, that means affirming religious pluralism, that you can be any faith in this country or no faith, and that religion should not dictate public policy. Now, of course, there's a place for all of us to express our beliefs and our views, but we do it in a pluralistic way where everybody is respected. And so to know that Christians are doing that, that's what I love to be a part of, is that religious voice for religious pluralism that I believe is the, the antidote uh, to Christian nationalism. Well, that, that's really, really good, uh, Guthrie. And, you know, 13 days ago, right, we celebrate, no, yeah, 13 days ago, we celebrated the one-year anniversary of the insurrection um, or uh, the storming of the Capitol, or m maybe some people would consider it, you know, like... Um, a tourist visit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. their visit, their tourist visit, or, or they're doing what they thought, you know, th this, this country needed. Kind of like when people used to call the uh, Civil War the War of Northern Aggression. You know, we have this, uh, this idea, you know. So uh, one, of my, uh, one of my questions, right, so we look at this and we see Trump flags flying right next to Jesus flags. I sent my friend, he's a super conservative. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really conservative, but he's a super conservative guy. I sent him a picture with uh, Jesus wearing a uh, MAGA hat. Um, like it was like a, it was like one of those pictures there. And I just said, won't he do it? Like, that's one of our phrases we say, won't he do it? And it was, of course, tongue in cheek and filled with sarcasm. And we laughed about it. Um, but uh, you had the QAnon shaman praying uh, on the floor, saying his prayer for the Senate uh, chamber. My question for you, as you saw this, what, what was your reaction to that time Um as a Christian, as a progressive Christian that I'm assuming would consider yourself on the left, what was your reaction to that? And how do you think we got here to that moment in our country? Well, I'll say I was actually sitting right here in a meet. I was in a very long meeting that day and my husband was texting me like they, they're storming the Capitol and they, they're in the Capitol. They're in, and I my brain couldn't process it. My brain couldn't process that the 
I've been a part of many protests, many uh, civil disobedience kind of actions, and my brain couldn't process the idea that there wouldn't have been just an excessive use of force to stop the people. Um, had they been a different uh, group of people, I think there would have been an excessive use of force by law enforcement to stop them from. So at, at first it was shock, and then I will say uh, dismay at the Christian symbols that we saw, and frustration, I think, because I think uh, something I say over and over again is kind of far-right Christianity, uh, people that, uh, you, you know, you brought up the Civil War, people that defended slavery uh, out of their Christian beliefs. This kind of far-right Christianity is never a surprise to me. And what I get frustrated about and kind of my calling in life is to uplift the good, or as what I see it, is the alternative Christian witness. And so uh, our team at the Center for American Progress put out a report actually in February called, <coughs> sorry, called the Pro-Democracy Faith Movement. And that was all about the faith leaders who were um, you know, fighting for voting rights, fighting to defend democracy, fighting to protect the election. And so those are the voices I think that are often go unheard, whereas we're so quick I put out a, my first book uh, in 2020 called Just Faith, Reclaiming Progressive Christianity. And I went on and on, probably too much, about Westboro Baptist Church. <laughs> because Westboro Baptist Church, you know, the people that pick it all, uh, the just really, really terribly anti-LGBTQ group that pickets service members' funerals, you know, really, really fringe, terrible group. Even people that are, you know, conservative and have conservative beliefs, I hope, could condemn what Westboro Baptist Church does. And yet that gets so much attention, that Westboro Baptist uh, view, even though that church is tiny. So that's sort of the course of my feelings about January 6th, uh, that I do think that those people that were saying, like, Jesus calls them to armed revolt to go kill Mike Pence or whatever they were trying to do, is a pretty fringe uh, element in the church. And there's a much broader pro-democracy faith movement that gets far less attention. Yeah, and so so when I when I spoke with Brian um last week, he he said something that that I think like will 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 stick with me for a while. Um we were we were framing, or maybe I should say I was framing a lot of the conversation kind of in the context of, you know, the Christian right is pushing all these initiatives or trying to Christianize America, you know, and, and, um, you know, we, we started also talking about the Christian left, you know, and, and, and I, I had, you know, that the, the, the conversation evolved to, you know, the Christian right and the Christian left really shouldn't be interfering because it's it's like you know christian right wants us to you know do x y and z because it's in the bible and then the christian left says no we really should be doing you know a b and c because it's in the bible and and it, and it's like each side is sort of like using biblical scripture to uh, push for an agenda that that is politically advantageous for each side you know and 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 i i'm curious if if I mean, like I, I identify more with the Christian left if, 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 if I had to just be honest about it, but I'm curious if like, what are some things that the Christian left and the Christian right can use our 
shared appreciation of the Christian faith, you know, to, um, you know, find common ground on an issue that affects all of Americans, whether you're, you're faithful or not. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. I do think there is a, a kind of extremist view of keeping faith out of the public square that I even um, recoil at sometimes because, you know, we just celebrated... Uh, Martin Luther King, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, birthday and federal holiday this week. And I think there is a role for people bringing in their faith to the public square around specific issues, around specific causes that makes room for people of other faiths and doesn't say that um, because we're Christian and Christians are the majority in this country, Christianity should dictate public policy. And yet there is a role to say, out of my Christian faith, I don't think we should be um, locking kids up in cages at the border. And there's a role to, to do that. It's, it's difficult sometimes, and sometimes we might disagree about where that line is. But I don't think we need to go the direction of saying religious leaders should uh, stay out of voicing moral concerns in a uh, pluralistic, inclusive kind of way. And when you talk about the Christian left, Christian right, you know, there are Christian socialists, there's Christian people on the far right, there's a lot of Christian moderates who maybe are socially liberal and fiscally more conservative and want lower taxes, but they also don't want to criminalize abortion. I mean, there's people of all across the political spectrum on every different issue. I think um, there are Christians and there are people that maybe don't think about certain issues because of their faith. And then, you know, say other issues are, are not part of their faith. So it's a very complicated and uh, kind of situation. But what I try to do is uplift the existence of people across. I think so much of people's frustration with Christianity and politics is that we only talk about Christianity on the right. And I think it would be a lot more normalized if we just acknowledge I don't act like the Christian right doesn't exist. Whereas people on the Christian right act like the Christian left doesn't exist. And then you have Christian moderates who are frustrated by all of it. So, to, but to go back to your question, where do, is there common ground? And I actually got my start, as you said, the, at the beginning of the program, doing immigration reform work. And I think that's one issue where there's a broad consensus. I worked with very, very conservative groups, the Southern Baptist Convention, the focus on the family. These are not liberal Christians in any sense of the word. Um, and, you know, there was a broad consensus that there could be some compromise. And actually, I, I was very proud to be part of this effort. They got 68 votes in the United States Senate. Uh, by broadly bipartisan framework for immigration reform. 
that included things that not everybody got everything they wanted, right? There was a pathway to citizenship for the undocumented, but there was also increased funding uh, for kind of security measures at our borders. So it was something that people came together around in a lot of different diverse religious communities uh, were supportive of. So immigration, I think, is, a, is an area where there is a lot of common ground for people that would consider themselves staunchly conservative, but not yeah, in the a... kind of racist Trump uh, nativist kind of sense, but they're conservative when it comes to, uh, you know, lower taxes and kind of uh, not changing uh, the country from traditional more, whatever that, that in that kind of conservative sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now, now your, your, your husband's a, um, a pastor, right? He is, um, yes. And I and I'm curious and may, may, maybe this 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 might be an experiment I'll I'll do one day as I'm curious if if more like I, I'm curious on the on the version of the Bible Christian progressives read versus the version of the Bible uh, those on the right read. Like I mean I I I tend to read like the message Bible, sometimes the ESV um, and I, I'm curious on what, what version of the Bible you, you and your husband read. <laughs> I love the message. I love the NRSV, I, the Common English Bible. I mean, I, I think it's less about, tra- I mean, some of it's about translation, but a lot of it is about your point of emphasis in Scripture because nobody reads the Bible completely literally where they're able, the Bible is inconsistent in, in just... Um, there's not, you know, one easily digestible instruction manual in the Bible that we can take and apply to our lives. So it's where is the emphasis? Is the emphasis on condemnation? Is the emphasis on kind of maintaining right beliefs and right practices and then doing that by excommunicating and, you know, getting rid of the, the problems and to try to purify the church and keep it pure? Is that your emphasis or is your emphasis on Jesus's constant call to to include and bring more people in and not to judge and uh, to love your neighbor like you would love yourself and to love your enemy and to be a peacemaker. So I find when if you ask somebody to say what are the top messages of Jesus, that will track within their kind of um, emphasis, their emphasis um, kind of politically and socially in our country. But I I also think people do read the Bible honestly and in good faith and come to different conclusions. So uh, I I think we'd go back to what I was saying about kind of seeing people falling differently. We'd go a long ways if I said, if we could just acknowledge there's a way to read the Bible that says same-sex marriage is holy and right before God, and there's a way to read the Bible that says, you know, God wants us to condemn and, you know, uh, convert, con- you know, do conversion therapy and all of that uh, and just kind of have that dialogue, but honor that people are coming from a genuine place. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I love that. Um, and I completely agree with you. Um, you know, I, I was challenged a lot in my uh views of same-sex marriage and, and everything, although I very much still hold to conservative views. My brother-in-law, is um, he got married to his husband um, a few years ago, 
And, um, and you know, obviously, you know, I, I, I love them and they're part of our family and, you know, fully accept them and, um, and wouldn't want it to be otherwise. And so it's been a challenging thing. And it, when you talk about that, that's been one of the, like, clarion calls of the, of the Christian right that, you know, something like same-sex marriage where they are, you know, people are being sued or they're being required to, you know, serve or whatever against their, you know, religious beliefs. And it becomes this free exercise issue in the Constitution and, and everything. And, and I think that's been covered a lot. I'm curious to ask you, what, do you, what concerns you about, like, the people, like, on the religious left and their attitudes towards maybe people on the religious right or people, um, or like what concerns you specifically about religious freedom? Like what kind of attitudes concern you and then for lack of a better term in your own tribe or your own camp? Um, I'm just curious to hear that because as I don't get, I, I know the things that concern me and mine, the kind of, you know, hatred that comes out and the homophobia that comes out and the, and the xenophobia that comes out and all, all the stuff that can be really a terrible witness, um, certainly to the love of Christ, as you alluded to. But I'm curious, what, what, are, what are your concerns as you, as you swim in these waters? I guess I would say picking any issue to be uh, a purist ideologically about is something I just don't think that works because I get the impulse to say these people, whatever issue, and people do it for different issues. So I'm, I don't want to, you know, uh, single out any, anyone in particular. I see it in different areas, but to say you're with me on this issue or you're my political enemy, I don't think is helpful. For instance, you know, I, married to a man I uh, he's a pastor I went to seminary you know we're uh, and the same time you know take someone like Pope Francis Pope Francis and I agree about a lot you know not the holiness of same-sex marriage for instance but we agree about war and ending war and uh, refugees and uh, critiquing capitalism and there's so many different areas that we agree upon that I can find common ground so I would say any sort of uh, labeling one group of people the enemy and the other uh, the ideologically pure is not helpful. And instead, we should see, you know, recognize diversity and look for those areas uh, where we can kind of make progress. Uh, and peace is one that there's so many issues that don't get talked about that I... <laughs> That if you just start talking to somebody about different kinds of issues politically, you may you're you're probably going to find some place that you can find some common ground. While also realizing the goal is not to just talk about those areas we have common ground either. I don't want to, you know, I'm I'm happy having those debates about, you know, I was uh, very supportive of ending the uh, Afghanistan war, for instance, and you know, 20 years most of my life we've been at war as a country. Now that's a very divisive issue. Uh, critiquing capitalism is a very divisive issue, but, and I've been around divisive issues my entire life. My parents are both uh, spent their careers as labor union organizers, a kind of inherently conflictual way of life. But I believe they were uplifting worker dignity and worker rights and, and giving workers a voice, but that's intention with the, you know, 
owners of the businesses and everything. So I think there's a way to both say we have differences and believe, you know, we're, we're both principled, principled, it principled in our advocacy across our differences while also looking for uh, ways we have in common. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's really awesome. You know, it's, it's, it's one of the reasons why Josh and I started this podcast. I mean, Josh and I rarely see eye to eye on, on a lot of political issues, whether it's, you know, abortion, LGBTQ, um, you know, taking down Confederate statues because Josh used to be a Confederate. Um, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, you know, so but but we, we we thought it was important that we at least like model the behavior that we want to see in the world, you know, at least on our podcast. I mean, like we we can disagree on stuff. I don't think I'm going to change his mind. He's he knows he's not going to change my mind, and and um, you know, I was just happy that he didn't vote for Trump last in the last election. You know, <laughs> so like I call that a win for me. You know, um, but. But I'm 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 curious on um, on on a couple things. One, um, have you have you read the book um, Jesus and John Wayne uh, by Kristen Dumay? I've read parts of it. I've not read it completely, but I, oh, I do have it. I've read have read parts of it. It's a it's an amazing book. Um, highly recommend it. We we had her on the show um, and chatted with her about it. I mean, she she's just an I think just an amazing person um, in the first place, but. But but part of her book, uh, or I should say part, all of her book, focused on sort of this spotlight on like toxic masculinity in church politics. Um, and it's it's funny, like as as I was drafting this question to ask you, I got this email from I forgot what organization, but it's like, you know, this conference for men of God or something like that, you know, iron sharpens iron, so on and so forth. And I and I and I would love to kind of get, get your your thoughts on the impact of toxic toxic masculinity in the church um if you think it's an issue um and if it is an issue like like how uh, like how has it affected you know the church ministry what what have you definitely and i i should say part of uh, my background just growing up is in a liberal methodist church that had i've had female pastors like my entire life um, and then becoming kind of a in a liberal Baptist church, and sometimes intra evangelical conversations, I sometimes avoid because I feel like, well, that's not my community that I grew up a part of, and I don't have a lot of experience attending an evangelical church. But I think the um, she obviously proves the thesis, and it's a, a very strong case about uh, toxic masculinity and. The ways in which we construct our faith communities, I think we see out in the world. And we have to think, some people want to divide sort of what happens in the church from what happens in society. And I think there is so much we can do within our own faith traditions to make them better live up to the uh, what I believe to be the teachings of Jesus uh, that then uh, impacts how people go and behave like in politics, whether that's uh, addressing, you know, the role of women in leadership and getting more women in leadership and addressing toxic masculinity or addressing LGBTQ issues in the church. 
addressing um, the sexual abuse that happens in churches. I, the biggest story that kind of shaped my faith was the, I think I was 12 when the uh, clergy abuse scandal came out uh, in um, the Catholic church and there's been others in other churches. So there's a lot in which we uh, need to reform the church that then I think is a good starting place to reforming society and kind of having that moral voice. And then people only take the church seriously when the church has its own kind of business in order uh, to be able to then go out and uh, have any kind of voice in the community. Yeah, uh, quick, quick, uh, quick question: um, Are you a are you a fan of Kevin James Thornton, um, the the TikTok um, '90s fundamentalist church guy? I, I don't know him. I'm not very oh big. On, I'm not very into TikTok. <laughs> I must admit. Well, he, he's this uh, like my my wife. So like my my wife was a PK. Like she grew up in church. I did not grow up in church, and um, she's the one that that got me onto it. And uh, for for listeners or viewers that know who he is, like the, they're all probably cheering right now. Like he, he's 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 this uh, he's this gay guy who grew up in the church and um, like talks a lot about sort of like his experience like in that context growing up and and um there's this there's this one skit i'm probably gonna butcher it but like where where he talks about um he was in a prayer circle um and everybody was sort of praying and it came to to be his turn and like and he hadn't come out yet and like so as he as he was like about to pray he says you know i get the sense that someone in this group you know has like same sex desires or something like that and like and he was talking about himself <laughs> but like but like everybody in the group you know didn't know that he was talking about himself so it was it was like an, an interesting sort of like i don't know like juxtaposition to just like be in that scenario anyways that's that's probably a really dumb story but like you should check him out <laughs> and i probably spent way too much I, I time will. talking about it. <laughs> so anyways that that was my question go ahead josh i'm sorry no it's all right you know I, I was reading one of your um i was reading one of your articles that i think it was an nbc but um it was on the uh the the vaccine like people coming out and saying like wearing masks like mask mandates um you know, that it's a obstruction of the image of God. And um, you're bringing some, I thought, very um, uh, insightful criticisms against that. Um, it got me thinking about, you know, the, the of course, the recent um, Supreme Court decision where kind of they've made two kind of conflicting decisions and somewhat, it seems, between regarding vaccine mandates one in which they were okay, I guess what it was a Biden v. Uh, I'm forgetting now. And then there's another one that was the uh, uh, National Association of Businesses versus like OSHA. Again, I, I probably didn't get that right, but oh, it's the National Federation of Independent Business v. OSHA. And I was just, I was just curious, you know, as you're, as we're, you know, working through this, what your views were of like the OSHA. Uh, vaccine mandate and even expanding more on that like what are the limits you think from a Christian perspective from a Christian left perspective what are the limits that the government should have um, during a pandemic in terms of requiring 
people to be vaccinated, um, wear masks, especially people claiming to have religious exemptions or, or religious issues, not even specifically Christian, but re religious issues or arguments against doing that? Well, thanks for that question. I would say that my, my first response is that throughout the pandemic, the clear Christian call has been to do everything possible to save as many lives as possible. I wrote another piece for uh, CNN right after the vaccines were announced, just in record time, that this was a huge miracle. Our prayers were answered. Uh, the, the vaccines have saved untold millions of lives. And it's amazing. And that we, the, the church should be doing from like a Christian ethics perspective, everything it can to uh, get people to take the vaccine, which, and there's actually been studies that show that religious leaders do have an impact in doing that. And then when it comes to religious exemptions, I find it very, very hard to believe there is a sincere religious objection to the vaccine. Even, and I went and looked into all this research about different religious traditions, there was not a, a blanket objection to vaccines from a kind of organized respect, uh, organized kind of um, group that even Christian science, kind of the most anti, you know, modern science, I think of different organized religions does not have a blanket, you know, anti-vax statement. And the cases of what we saw people arguing for so-called religious exemptions were I, I, hard to take seriously. Like the guy in Oklahoma who's running for Senate and it's like, I'll give a religious um, exemption to anybody from the COVID man, uh, vaccine mandate. And so I, I think it is, if there are people that were, you know, super against vaccines even before COVID and have this long demonstrated religious view that is um, anti-vaccine, then let's hear about that. I haven't seen, you know, widespread evidence of that happening. I think vaccine mandates are called for, are a good uh, public health measure. And I was really glad to see in May, I interviewed, um, on our AmericanProgress.org website, I did an interview with the head of the Maine Council of Churches, and they actually got rid of their um, religious exemption for all different kinds of vaccines that are mandated. Uh, and so this is a, a good step, I think, and a lot of religious organizations called for that because the, the mandates show, um, that I was just listening to a podcast earlier about uh, the mandate that United Airlines did uh, on its employees and how that really had a huge impact on them being able to operate. So I think the, the mandates are good and I have not heard a good case for a religious exemption. Real quick follow up. What, what did you like? How did you respond to the, to the um, Supreme court decision about the uh, national federation of independent business VOSHA? Like what, I don't know if you were able to read the arguments, the dissenting, and the um, and and the uh, pro the arguments. Yeah, I'm trying to. But um, what 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 were your responses to that as you looked at it? 
Yeah, I haven't read the decision. I was generally disappointed because I feel like that was a good way to get people to, to take the vaccine and that there is um, there was not this widespread like uh, religious exemption vaccine. It, it's been manufactured as a political cause, I believe, during the pandemic, and that has had huge negative impacts on on saving people's lives and is really a, a sad development. Uh, whereas most, every all the churches that I follow, you know, many, the vast, vast majority, and, there, and Pew has research into this too, the vast majority of uh, churches did what was right and stopped meeting in person, for instance, during the beginning of the pandemic. And then you had a few that were like, no, we're gonna meet and fight the government. And that was, you know, extremely frustrating to see uh, churches take that stance. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so, so you're you're a fellow at the um, uh, Center of American Progress. Um, and and correct me if I'm wrong. Is there a division that that's that's sort of separately labeled as religion and faith uh, that that you're a part of? Yes, we have a team that handles religion and faith. Got it. So, 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 what's kind of like the main, the overarching mission, like of of that of that team? Um, so, because the Center for American Progress is, um, I don't, I don't like how I don't, I don't even know how you would describe. It. It's not like a, it's a think tank probably. Is that probably the best way to describe it? So, 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 so what, what is what is like the religion and faith portion um, center on? So the Center for American Progress is a multi-issue think tank. We publish original research and um, different kinds of reports, issue briefs on a wide range of different issues on both uh, foreign and domestic policy. You know, if you want to read about all of our different issue areas, you can go to AmericanProgress.org. And then our team that deals with religion and faith has two major kind of buckets of work. The first is religious liberty policy. So we write, for instance, the column I was just referencing about this effort in Maine to provide leadership on religion and vaccines. Then we also, uh, in that kind of bucket, do work around, we did a lot of work during the Trump administration around opposing Trump's Muslim ban, which was an infringement on religious liberty. We also do work to uphold things like the, to advocate for pieces of legislation like the Equality Act, which is, uh, we think a, a huge uh, victory, would be if passed, it's passed in the House, awaits action in the Senate, it would be a huge victory for religious liberty. So then we also work with religious leaders across all the different issues that CAP works on. And so that can be, uh, you know, people that were advocating for Build Back Better and the historic investments in child care and pre-K and the climate investments. I did a column for CAP around the all the different religious activism that happens for climate change. We put out a report recently about the religious activism around gun violence prevention. Wherever you look in the progressive movement, there's a lot of religious advocacy. So that's the second bucket is kind of doing research and making people aware of and amplifying religious advocacy across a range of different issues. Got it. So, so like with, with advocacy on certain issues, um, whether it's climate change or immigration reform or equality, what, what have you, I mean, like, 
are is that advocacy done on you know or done from kind of a a christian like uh perspective or or is it is it sort of you know cross it, it or does it cross you know multiple religious lines because i mean i i'm i'm not an expert in all the religions but i i'd assume that there's got to be some some areas where some religions would conflict with you know like my own personal christian view about you know x y and z or what or what have you so i think any religion there's a diversity of belief within that religion just like we've been talking about the differences in christianity i mean every denomination is also diverse so you know there's a lot of baptists that probably don't like a lot of the work i do and the the views i take in uh, my kind of advocacy work and the center for american progress though is a secular think tank. We are uh, not a religious organization, but we work with and in partnership with a wide variety of religious organizations. There's on our on our website, keep plugging the website, hope people go and visit. There's a list of some of our partners. So go we have Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, Sikh, uh, Jewish, uh, the organized non-religious we also work with because as much as we advance the cause of uh, different religious groups and their advocacy, we also want to always reinforce the separation of church and state and make sure people hear about the organized non-religious, whether that's American atheists, sec people that organize themselves around being secular. And then one thing I'll also uh, mention that is a good way to kind of learn more about our work is every year we put out a list of faith leaders to watch. And these are exciting faith leaders that we've been doing this list since 2012. So now there's many dozens of them. And it's a kind of who's who of activism from a progressive faith standpoint. And it's different religions, different issues, but all kinds of people that are uh, advancing progressive change. So, so in other words, Josh can't be on that list, right? <laughs> Sorry, Josh. Womp womp. I'm sure there are many other there are many other lists. Uh, I'm sure you have on other guests that have that make <laughs> other lists that Josh there could be on. There are other options. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, so, so I, I, I'm curious. So, with all the advocacy you you do, I mean, like, is there is there a a portion of that advocacy that that tries to, uh, for the lack of better term, like to get the souls to the polls, like, you know, the movement down in Georgia does, um, because it's, it's like th th there was, there was a Pew Research poll back in like August of last year, you know, that was like seven in 10 white non-Hispanic Americans, you know, who attended religious service, um, regularly voted for Trump, um, like 70% of them, um, while only like a quarter, like 27% voted for Biden. And, and I'm, I'm curious on, you know, num number one, like why that is, and and you know, I've got I've got thoughts of why that is, but but it seems like there's there's sort of like this, you know, underground movement or or existence of believers that may think more, you know, um, progressively, um, but aren't necessarily you know, coming out and voting in droves. So, so what, what, what are you guys doing, I guess, about that? And that poll was white religion, white mm -hmm. religious people. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting to me that, and this is, you know, 
not to push back against your question too much, but it's, I see this kind of widespread when we talk about religion and politics, that we talk about white religious people as being motivated by their religion, and then black Americans and people of color generally uh, as motivated by their race as their involvement in politics, and erase the religiosity. We, we de-emphasize the religiosity of people of color in American, you know, politics, and then overemphasize it for uh, white, you know, religious people, especially white evangelicals. So I, I would say let's look at the num let's first of all let's think about everybody uh, in the country and their religious motivations, and then also I'll just say the Center for American Progress is a 501c3 non-partisan nonprofit organization. So we're not involved in any kind of electoral campaigning or, or partisan campaigning. We do support voting rights as an issue area and support, you know, making it easier to vote from a policy standpoint. But what I, what, what I always come back to when we're just talking about white evangelicals is the, you know, diversity within that community and the 20 whatever percent you said of, of white evangelicals that voted for Biden, those stories because uh, those are the voices that we so often don't hear from. And then I think that the cause of it is simple. The, in terms of like why the religious right has been so successful and done so well electorally is they made it so simple. It's like criminalize abortion and you know hate gay people. <laughs> those are the two issues. Those are the only things that, that uh, are Christian issues and you know rally people around that it's very simple whereas it's in the in the progressive space it's very there's a lot of issues one day you're talking about immigration you're talking about voting rights you're talking about climate you're talking about uh, war and, and and approaching all of those religiously and it's very complicated and, and messy sometimes yeah that makes a lot of sense I um I I well, I, I guess it kind of makes me sad when I hear you talk because I, I want there to be a robust conversation with, um, you know, evangelical uh, whites to not just focus on those two issues and, and actually be individuals, you know, that can't just be, you know, it, it, you know, can't just be bought for lack of a better term. Our votes can't just be bought or, or manipulated, manipulated into that. And, and in that vein, you know, because I have a lot of different, you know, I like to see myself as an individual. I, you know, I, I like to see myself as not just having, I'm sure there are clusters of beliefs, right, that you can see around certain people that vote a certain way. You might see clusters of beliefs if you were to do a survey, you know, that they might believe similarly um, within this group. My question is, say hypothetical, it's, it's hypothetical. Say you were doing research and you came to a place where you're like, wow, like I, the research I'm doing is making me think like differently or is coming to a different conclusion than would be, you know, um, considered acceptable or, or the, you know, the, uh, the, the reigning view within, say, the Center for American Politics, or on the other side, say, something like the Heritage Foundation or something like that. Like, wh like say, like, you're in 
because you're kind of in this space of research. If you come to a place where your research is saying something different than kind of what your principles, like what your principles might, um, might, might drive you to write or conclude, I don't know if that's ever happened to you or if you know people that's happened to, like how might that work with the, I mean, I guess my question is how much can these more partisan think tanks actually in like actually encourage free thinking, um, you know, if there is a line that you can't cross in terms of policy thoughts or it does that question make sense i don't know if i need to rephrase it um i'm just wondering how that how that might work in your experience whether it's you personally or things you've seen sure and i will just reiterate that the center of american progress is a nonpartisan think tank and there right. is Not, there is no true. there is no list of um principles or policy positions that um, our research, you know, there's no point in the process at which I check what faith leaders are saying and doing and check that against some, you know, script or some, uh, gotcha, there's no, yeah. we're not the democratic party that has a platform or anything. There's uh, the research is independent and comes out of a, um, what we're seeing faith leaders doing. And so I can, I can say, in, you know, in my two, I'm coming up, uh, I started February 1st of 2020, so coming up on two years at CAP, there's never been some kind of, does this match some, some policy uh, litmus test that someone has come up with? And I will say, uh, I can just speak for myself, I'm a fellow, you know, I, I have my own views, and a lot of what I also do is research what faith leaders are doing in this space. So those are two separate things. But I will say my own views have changed over time. So there's no, my own views, and I'll, I'll speak specifically about war. I grew up at a time when um, there was a lot of talk about genocide that was happening um, in Rwanda and then um, in Darfur. And there was a, a strong sense of, um, you know, the humanitarian interventions were right and just. And, you know, I have someone that studied just war theory and thought a lot about the, the use of uh, military force, uh, when that is called for, when that can be, um, you know, accomplished, uh, what, and the kind of ethics around that. And my views have changed. I've become much, 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 more uh, reluctant to think the use of military forces ever ever accomplishes something good. So I've just seen that change in my own life. And then the people we uplift, for instance, I was talking about faith leaders to watch. We put one on there from the Friends Committee on National Legislation, the, the former head, of, that's a Quaker peace organization. They're very, you know, uh, about as nonviolent as you can get. There are other groups that, you know, have, uh, that are not in that kind of pure pacifist kind of uh, mindset. So there's a diversity. That war is just one issue um, that where my views have changed and there's a diversity of beliefs. But 
Yeah, I, I think it's important to, to show that diversity and that there's never a set, you know, position that we're all trying to, and look at, I mean, also in the, I mean, the Democratic Party even, you know, uh, separate from our work at CAP, the Democratic Party has a platform and yet the range of views between Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin, I guess Bernie's not really a member of the party, the, the, the range of views between Elizabeth Warren and Joe Manchin are very different. So that even in the political parties, there's a range of different beliefs. And that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I hope so, that answered um, your question, Josh. Uh, my, my, my last question for you is, is um, um, so gosh, I guess this is 2022. So in 2020, um, you know, there's a lot of um, social justice protests, especially after the death of George Floyd. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to kind of get your, your thoughts on, you know, the, the Christian response, um, to, you know, the, the social justice movement, um, you know, and, and this isn't necessarily just like, you know, progressive Christian response. It's just broadly speaking, you know, as a body of believers, like how, how did we do? Um, because, you know, I, I, I will say, you know, Josh, was even out there in the streets, you know, and he got beat up for, I think, saying Black Lives Matter once or something like that <laughs> and, and, uh, and got, got beat up by his community. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm, I'm curious on, on how, how you feel, you know, uh, us Christians, how do, how do we do? Well, I would say a mixed bag as always on any, on any issue. I will say there was a, a prophetic voice that uh, proclaimed Black Lives Matter immediately. I remember when the Black Lives Matter kind of uh, movement started after the George Zimmerman acquittal. Um, I was actually visiting, I was living in DC at the time in the Trayvon Martin um, killing and I was living in uh, DC but I was actually in New York visiting my sister and we went to church the next day after the acquittal and Reverend Jackie Lewis uh, the Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, the senior minister of Middle Collegiate Church, had the whole church wear hoodies in solidarity with Trayvon Martin. And then when I was in seminary, um, when Black Lives Matter uh, continued to build in 2014, the whole seminary was turned into a protest hub where the professors and the students um, were out in the streets um, uh, protesting and you saw that everywhere there was a Black Lives Matter kind of uprising in Ferguson there was a lot of religious activism there there were Christians who immediately knew the Christian call was to proclaim Black Lives Matter to work for racial justice to um, stand up to uh, police brutality all of that and then of course there were the site the the silent Christians who said nothing out of fear. And then there was uh, people that, you know, uh, have now kind of fomented this, this backlash, which is this whole made up anti-critical race theory um, move, you know, so-called movement that has been manufactured as backlash. And you see Christians supporting that. So you have a range of, of views. You have the leadership in many ways of the black church, which is the, the kind of moral conscience of the church. And uh, then you have a lot of white Christians not getting it. But I do, uh, to your point about uh, a lot of people who 
you know, considered themselves to be more conservative, did get involved in the Black Lives Matter movement. I remember, I grew up in Houston, uh, Texas, and I was very surprised to see Joel Osteen even, I think, showed up at one. Uh, so there was this kind of um, people getting uh, pushed to really do something. And I hope that uh, continues, that people do the hard work of, of getting involved and uh, support uh, Sheila Jackson Lee. Speaking of Houston, uh, I, I had the most amazing uh, congresswoman growing up, Sheila Jackson Lee, who is the lead sponsor of HR 40, which is the bill to study reparations. So uh, now that the, the protests, you know, so many people have gotten involved in the protests and everything, now's the hard part of, uh, well, that was hard too, but it continues to be hard to actually enact policy change. And that's why supporting things like HR 40 um, are, is so important. And, and uh, I hope more Christians will get involved in that work. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you so much, really Guthrie. Cool. I, I really appreciate you yes. uh, spending some time with us. And um, I don't know, just, just talking about your work and kind of your views and thoughts that I'm, uh, what's, what's sort of like next on your, on your agenda? I noticed that, that you and your husband have moved to the swamp or are moving to the swamp. <laughs> we so. are, are planning. We are still in, in Louisville and are planning to move to D.C., uh, which I'm excited about. I lived in D.C. Uh, before, went to college in D.C. And yeah, I, people always are... <laughs> I said um, the other day we did this thing at church uh, where we... It's called Cloud of Witnesses where we kind of share our faith story. And I was like, you know, I, I work in politics and, and public policy and a lot of people find that dysfunctional and kind of gross <laughs> and not a good thing to work in. But my experience of D.C. in the religious space is that there's so many people who are there. Um, think about nuns on the bus. I don't know if you all have heard of them, <laughs> that um, network lobby for Catholic social justice. They are a group of nuns that go around advocating uh, for the common good. There's so much good that happens from a religious common good standpoint in D.C., that uh, it makes, you know, you can just ignore all the corporate lobbyists and the special interests <laughs> and stuff. And the, the kind of religious organizing space in DC is wonderful. So I'm excited to be a part of it again. That's really cool. Awesome. Well, thanks again. And thank you to our listeners and viewers. And um, yeah, we will uh, see you next week. So thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me on. Thank you.